Hello and welcome to Hey, Remember the 80s? I'm Joe. I'm Carrie. Remember, we're not professional podcasters or music critics. We're just two poor boys and pilgrims with families talking about 80s music. So give us a break. Yeah. Welcome, Carrie. Thank you, Joe. Welcome to you. And welcome to any new listeners. Welcome to any loyal listeners. We found some in Long Lake, Minnesota, Washington, Virginia, and Bergen op Zoom, the Netherlands. Interesting. So yes. there's actually a town called Washington, Virginia. Do you think they get confused? I mean, they must with Washington, Washington D.C. And then they're like, no, I live in Washington, right. Virginia. <laughs> well, let's have them chime in. Let us know out there if you live in Washington, Virginia. All of those folks and everyone else can keep up with us on our Facebook, which is facebook.com slash HRT80S. We also have a Twitter, which is at HRT80S. We had people reach out to us on Facebook this week. I'm always tickled when someone asks us a question about the podcast or, you know, needs more info from us. Love it. Feel free to reach out, post, send a message, because we love it all. Yeah, we do. We love to hear from our listeners. So thanks to everyone that communicates with us. And we love communicating with you through the podcast and otherwise. And telepathically. (laughs) Yes, I'm sending you all something right now. We had nothing in the tidbits, Carrie, but I couldn't let that happen. So I just added a quick one right before we called. I see. So what Mm -hmm. would you like to tell the listeners about this special anniversary? Well, we missed it, first of all. There was the Live Aid (laughs) anniversary. That was this week, 36th anniversary, I believe. Uh, I talked about it a little bit on Charlie's. The countdown that happened this weekend was the Summer Songs of 1985. You did. And we've done two intense shows about Live Aid, I believe, and all the stuff that went on (laughs) behind the scenes, on stage, you know, all the drama. So I didn't think we needed, Mm -hmm. you know, an anniversary show. But I did drag out my Live Aid DVD that I purchased and you and I watched together. I saw that. And I watched highlights from the first disc. Paul Young, still showstopper, (laughs) same with Spandau Ballet. And I read the insert from the person who compiled this and put this DVD together. And it sounds like there was just a ton of footage not found that they thought was not going to be on the DVD because we'd mentioned they didn't want it recorded, just broadcast live. Yeah. Well, at the last minute, MTV found this big box. They had no idea what it was, but it was a ton of like B-roll footage from Live Aid. Oh, very cool. So a lot of that was remastered and restored and they used it. And the one thing the producers of the DVD couldn't fix was a performance from Ashford and Simpson with Teddy Pendergrass. Oh, wow. Isn't that great? We talked about both of them very recently. Mm -hmm. They included it as an extra on the DVD because it still has a lot of, I guess, the Chiron. You know what I mean? It's like they tried and then there's also they couldn't remove MTV's graphics and that kind of thing. But it was lost forever, it sounds like. And if you want to see it, it's on YouTube. It's hard to find a performance video of Ashford and Simpson singing Solid one of my favorite songs. But there's a small clip on YouTube you can see, and they sounded really great. And I wish they had been included on the DVD proper. You know, I feel yeah. feel bad for them. It sounds like this performance with Teddy Pendergrass was, like, really amazing. Wow. Yeah, it's so crazy. You know, 36 years ago, obviously, it was a huge event, but no one knew about 
DVDs or, Mm -hmm. you know, how big nostalgia things like this would come to be and the need to capture everything meticulously. I mean, you know, nowadays, I'm sure there's not a single festival that happens that's not 20 cameras recording it from every angle to make sure that they get everything. So that makes it even more special, right? When you get to see, go back and see that. And special for the people that were actually there and are like, well, I don't need to look back on it because I have the actual memory. So that's cool. And that's about it on my Live Aid report. I have three more DVDs that I'll go through in the next week or so. (laughs) All right. Well, that means that we can get right into our main topic, which we are not taking a break from Paz and Jop. We're heading right back into the next years because, I don't know, I just love these so much. I'm having so much fun with them. So when I was picking the topic this week, I was like, let's do it again. Hell yeah, let's go all the way. (laughs) So we're up to 1986. And you all know the story with this Paz and Jop poll by now. It's the critics poll from the Village Voice newspaper in New York City. We're going to break down the winners and also talk about selections from Robert Christgau's Dean's List, which was his personal ballot. So for 1986, Graceland by Paul Simon was the winning album with 1,131 points on 96 ballots. There were 224 critics that cast ballots that year. So I'm actually shocked that more than half of them simply didn't include Graceland. But the ones that loved it really loved it, I guess. We talked briefly about the album back in episode number 48, and it has a really long backstory, which we'll try to cover a little bit here. Paul Simon was given a bootleg tape of South African street music, which is called Mbakanga. Mbakanga musicians, because of apartheid, were often forced to perform in the streets in front of record stores because they could not get airtime on radio stations or formal concerts. Paul Simon was so intrigued by the bootleg that he heard he asked his record company to try and identify the musicians on the tape, and there's some dispute even today as to who it was he actually heard, Lady Smith Black Mambazo or the Boyoyo Boys. Oh yeah, yeah. I guess he didn't keep the tape. I don't know. I'm not sure. I think maybe it's just he's never said definitively. And who knows? So Simon's record company obtained and sent him more South African music. And Simon decided to travel to South Africa to learn more and to record. He knew he'd be criticized for going to South Africa. Remember, this was just about the time of that protest single, Sun City, that the Pazanjap people went nuts for on that last singles poll. But the South African Black Musicians Union voted to allow Simon to come since they believed he could bring their music to an international stage. And boy, did he, right? Yeah. Good call. Still, Simon received significant backlash and he was added to a United Nations blacklist. Simon recruited many Native musicians to record with him in Johannesburg and paid them more than even the rate they would receive in New York City for session work. He also gave writing credits to musicians he felt contributed significantly. Simon recorded music for two weeks and then returned to New York City to write lyrics and ended up flying some South African musicians to New York to help him finalize the songs. Of course, the big songs from the album were You Can Call Me Al and the title track, which won Record of the Year the year after Graceland won Album of the Year. Still haven't figured out what the hell's going on there. Mm -mm. 
But we are going to talk about two of my favorite album tracks instead. Joe, this album was huge for me because (laughs) I was a big fan of Simon and Garfunkel. I don't know how I got into Simon and Garfunkel, but I then kind of followed Paul Simon into his solo career. And when I heard this album for the first time, I fell in love with it. What about you? Let's cut to the chase and talk about your feelings on the album right now. I mean, right now, I love it. Okay. Mm -hmm. I only knew You Can Call Me Out. I didn't know any other song from this album until the last couple of years. And then, I don't know, I listen to it now and I think, how can I not like this? And I love Vampire Weekend and other bands who are basically copying what he did here. Let's just say it, right? Never made that connection. Oh, yeah. Yep. So how could I not love it? And I do love these songs that we're going to talk about. But when you talked about the critics who didn't include this on the album, I thought, well, that's just got to be the younger critics. Because even back then and now, I would say, this is an album for olds. (laughs) And I thought, certainly no one young, no one under the age of 25 with all the new stuff that was coming out could put this at the top of their list. And then, of course, we have young (laughs) Carrie, who was listening to Paul Simon and Katie Lang and drinking (laughs) International Foods flavored coffees as a nine-year-old. I want to be clear. I don't think I knew this album when it came out. I knew You Can Call Me Out, just like you said. But I got into Simon and Garfunk when I was like high school, like junior high and high school. So I will say I was like a 16-year-old, I think, listening to Graceland and loving Graceland, but not a (laughs) nine-year-old. So 10 years after it was out, you were blasting this in your car. Pretty much. Pretty much. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) All right. So one of my favorites is Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes, which features backing vocals from Ladysmith Black Mombazo and a co-writing credit for Joseph Shabalala, the group's musical director. People say I'm crazy. I got diamonds on the soles of my shoes. Yeah. Well, that's one way to lose these walking blues Diamonds on the soles of my shoes Formed in 1960, Ladysmith Black Mombazo were mostly brothers and cousins of Shabalala. The group won so many singing contests in South Africa that they were eventually welcomed to perform, but could not compete. The song was not originally intended for inclusion in the album, but when Paul Simon's label pushed the release date back from spring to fall, he took the opportunity to record it with the group, who had flown in to perform with him on Saturday Night Live. It was released as a single and peaked at 77 in the UK, but did not chart in the States. I love this one. It, you know, Ladysmith Blackman's Bazo comes in kind of towards the end and provides backing vocals. But what about the intro? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yep. You know, I really just love that he kind of showcased these different voices. And I don't know, we'll talk a little bit more about the politics of it, I guess, at the end. But uh, what do you think of Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes? Can I ask a question? Yes. Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes, was that a saying before this song? Or is this an original phrase? Or I have no idea. I don't think of it as a saying, so I, I only ask because there's a Simpsons episode where ah. there's a joke, and they're like, oh, look, she has diamonds on the soles of her shoes. And I'm like, I know this is a joke moment, and I should know this is a reference to something, but was it the song then? I think it must have been. I don't know. I've never heard that phrase. I love this song, though. This song is great. I love it. 
It wasn't there an ocean spray commercial or something? <laughs> really? <laughs> Am I wrong? Like, I feel like that's what it reminded me of. I'm sure at some point, yes, Ocean Spray has used this song. <laughs> Not the song, but the Ladysmith Black Mambazo. Either they used them like they sang a jingle or they ripped them off for it. Someone's got to remember. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt that. How well do you know the movie Mean Girls? I mean, not super well. It's like one of our favorite jokes here in this house when Lindsay Lohan's character is starting to become, you know, a wild child and she cancels plans with her mom. And she's like, we had tickets. You love Lady Smith Black Mambazo. <laughs> so we say that at the, around the house when we cancel on something that we like. <laughs> I'm glad that Lady Smith Black Mambazo lives on in your household. Mm-hmm. Well, the next song that I really loved was Under African Skies. And this one was controversial because Paul Simon recruited his friend Linda Ronstadt to sing backing vocals. Linda had just accepted $500,000 years earlier to perform at Sun City. I know, and had been widely criticized. Paul Simon was asked to perform on Sun City, but he decided not to because there was an earlier version of the song that specifically called Ronstadt and other artists that had performed in South Africa out. (laughs) You know, if they had kept that, like... bitchy vibe of the song. Maybe I would have liked it more, you know? I would have liked if Sun City was an explicit diss track. Spill that tea, (laughs) right? Sun City tea. Well, putting all of that aside, it is just really a gorgeous song. It is. Their voices together. You know, Mm -hmm. she's just amazing. Joseph's face was black as night The pale yellow His path was marked by the stars in the southern hemisphere, and he walked his days under African skies. You and I have talked about Linda Rodstadt before. I love her. I love her voice. I know we've talked about the documentary, which is called The Sound of My Voice. They covered that in there. I mean, they covered her going to South Africa. She kind of just seemed like she didn't get it. You know what I mean? Like she didn't understand the implications, which is kind of crazy because she seemed like she was a very politically savvy person. She was. Remember those like talking heads or like interviews on cable news and stuff? And she was going a mile a minute. Seemed like she was pretty aware. Yeah. So I just don't know. I I guess I'd like to find that out. I don't know if she's ever definitively spoken out about why she did it or why she thought it was justified to do it. I mean, I've heard her Mm. defend it and say that she doesn't regret it. I don't know that I've heard her reasoning, which is kind of strange, but it's a little bit of a bummer that she did that. But this song is beautiful. And, you know, I'm glad that she kind of redeemed herself a little bit by being included on this album and bringing this music to the masses. Ultimately, Paul Simon seemed to have good intentions with Graceland, the album, but bad feelings did linger. After Apartheid ended, he performed in Johannesburg at Nelson Mandela's invitation in 1991, but protesters threatened violence, and the concert only went on under the protection of 800 policemen. Ooh. Yikes. 
I don't want to give a big political opinion about whether he was right or wrong to use these musicians. I mean, ultimately, it sounds like they voted to allow him to come there and record. And and obviously, the musicians that participated wanted to. It's not like he forced them to at gunpoint. I don't think so. You know, and he included them with co-writing credits so they get royalties. It seems like a good thing to me, but I also understand the other point of view that at the time, South Africa was still under the regime of apartheid. And, you know, I could see the other point where it was like, you should have just not been involved at all until apartheid fell. But it is what it is at this point. Right. Because had he waited, he might not have captured the zeitgeist the way he did, you know? Yes. Yeah. And we ended up with this classic album. So, yeah, I guess we'll weigh the implications uh, off the air. (laughs) It's a great album. Yeah, it's a great album. I haven't listened to it in a long time, and I was really happy to put it on again and be remembered of how much I love it. So just as a quick note, second place that year was Pazanjapol's darling Elvis Costello with an album called The Costello Show featuring Elvis Costello and King of America. I don't know what the hell that is all about, but it received 746 points. So Graceland was far and away the winner that year. Chris Gow included Graceland on his album list, placing it at number seven and assigning it eight points. But his number one album for the year with 18 points was The Indestructible Beat of Soweto, a compilation album of various artists from South Africa. This album was released in 1985 in the UK and then in the US in early 86, predating Graceland by many months. It had actually been recorded over a period of four years from 1981 to 1984. It was one of the first commercially available albums of South African music and was conceived by two white men who had left South Africa for the UK, featuring many different artists, including Lady Smith Black Mambazo. Man, it was their year, huh? <laughs> yeah. Chris Gow said in his original A-plus review of the album, the defiantly resilient and unsentimental exuberance of these musicians has to be fully absorbed before it can be believed, much less understood. Well, we'll play you a clip from the instrumental Joyce Number no. 2 by Johnson Nkalali. What do you think of this, Carrie? I think that uh, Chris Gow got it right. It's unsentimental exuberance really caught me. I was like, yeah, that is what this sounds like to me. It's just, it's really vibrant and fun. And you know what it also reminded me of? It reminded me of the music we heard from Los Lobos a couple episodes ago when we talked about their EP that was on the Peasant Jop poll. Like, I think there's a mm. lot of crossover between the vibe and, and a little bit of the musicality of traditional Mexican or Latin music and South African music. I really like it. You're going to be visiting next week, so maybe we can listen to those both in their entirety. Yeah, I think that would be fun pool music, you know, because when you're in the pool, it just, you know, kind of fades into the background. But if you got a nice beat and a vibe going, it's very cool. Well, the single of the year was Walk This Way by Run DMC. That got 78 votes. And Cameo was in second place with Word Up, which got 68. We talked about Walk This Way a little bit last week um, when we were talking about Run DMC. And I think I had my facts all wrong about it. 
Uh, I had always thought that Aerosmith had recruited Run DMC to do a remake of Walk This hmm. Way and then took all the credit. But in fact, Walk This Way was originally Aerosmith's song from 1975. In 1986, Run-DMC was recording their third studio album with producer Rick Rubin, and he was listening to the album Toys in the Attic and suggested Run-DMC should remake the song. Joseph Simmons and Daryl McDaniels didn't even really know who Aerosmith was, and they were reluctant to do it, but eventually conceded because Rubin and Jam Master Jay were very passionate. The original idea was just to rap over the original music, but Ruben brought Steven Tyler and Joe Perry in to play on the track with them. The song broke through on both urban and rock radio, reaching number eight on the R&B chart and four on the Hot 100. It did spur a comeback for Aerosmith, but Run DMC would never chart that high again. I think I remembered this song as being credited to Aerosmith, and maybe that's kind of my point, is that I think Aerosmith got a lot of the glory from this song. And not Run DMC. And not Run DMC. Well, what did the credits on the MTV video say? I can't remember. I don't know. I mean, the single was definitely just credited to run DMC. Mm-hmm, right. I guess my original point stands that I think Aerosmith is more known for this today, or it was more of a boon for Aerosmith at the end of the day than it was for run DMC. But run DMC should get all the credit. Yes, I've always given them all the credit. For <laughs> this is fun. You know, this is a song that MTV really overplayed. And so it became a real big bummer for me to hear it for a long time. But then when I was listening to it this week, I was like, this song is fresh and cool. It's what I was going to say, fresh. The point stands again that what we were talking about last week, that Run DMC really knew how to marry those guitars and the rapping in a way that sounded organic and not like it was a stunt or, you know. A gimmick. Yeah, a gimmick. Right. Well, you know, sometimes it takes, you know, learning about these songs in their context and then hearing them again and making it new, essentially. So you can take away all that baggage you had where, you know, you saw it every hour on MTV, but it really is very innovative and I love it. It's a bummer to me that Run DMC wasn't like the hugest group in the world after this song. I don't know. I guess I need to go back and listen to the rest of their albums because, you know, I'm sure there's good stuff on there. But I can't name another Run DMC song after Walk This Way. Do you remember the Sex in the City movie, the first one? Yes. I love that moment where... They're getting rid of Carrie's apartment and her clothes, and Samantha gets out a CD, and they obviously didn't know what music they were going to get licensed for the movie. So she just goes, <laughs> hey, girls, remember this song from the 80s? And they press play, and it's the song, and they do that little fashion show. But I think they really picked a good song. I don't remember that part. It's been a long time since I've seen the movie. Oh, yeah. Same here. Did you ever see the second Sex in the City movie? I never yes. saw it. I talked to someone over Pride Weekend who defended part two. It wasn't that Ugh. bad as people say. I was like, right, I'm just going to go over here and get <laughs> some punch. I don't know how I feel about the new reboot, whatever the frick we're calling it. Right. I'm so over all of these reboots. <sighs> yeah, I know. All right, getting back to 80s music. <laughs> right, yeah. Come up with something fresh. Anyway, we're going to talk about 1987. <laughs> 
And the critics at The Village Voice that year chose Sign of the Times by Prince as its number one album. 118 ballots named it for a total of 1,491 points. Bruce Springsteen was second with 912 points for Tunnel of Love. Carrie, I bought that record last week, remember? Ooh, yeah. Gotta listen to it this week. The number three album in 1987 was Pleased to Meet Me by The Replacements with 846 points. Carrie, if I ever get amnesia, remind me that I want to say that to myself. (laughs) You're so dark. You promise? Yeah, okay. Okay. The Replacements were the darlings of the Paz and Jop poll. The year before, Tim had been the number two album. In 84, Let It Be was number four. We gave a brief history of the replacements in episode 78. They formed in Minneapolis in 1979 and Pleased to Meet Me was their fifth studio album. Guitarist Tim Stinson had recorded demos for the album with the band in August of 86, but he'd left the band by the time the final recordings were scheduled for the end of the year. The band continued as a trio with Paul Westerberg and Tommy Stinson. There was a Tommy and a Tim. Yeah, yeah. Were they brothers? Yes. (laughs) With Paul Westerberg and Tommy Stinson playing guitar. The song Alex Chilton was about the lead singer of Big Star, the 70s group that inspired the replacements. Chilton was a solo artist in the mid-80s, and his EPs often appeared at the top of Paz and Jop EP polls. The song was originally written as George from Outer Space, about the band's roadie, but Westerberg changed them to make them an homage to Chilton. The lyric, I'm in love with that song, comes from Westerberg's first meeting with Chilton, where he said, I'm in love with that one song of yours. What's that song? Because he couldn't remember the name of the big star song, Watch the Sunrise. That's like one of my biggest fears in life is like beating someone I really love and being like, I love that one song of yours. <laughs> and not being and you able can't to remember because you're so panicked. <laughs> yeah. God, I feel like something like that happened to me. Was it when you met Spoon? I don't know. No. You feel like you have a weird story about when you met Spoon. My damn memory, you know, maybe I do have amnesia. <laughs> well, I'm pleased to meet me. <laughs> All right. I love this song. I know you do. I know and you love all of the replacements, basically, right? All of their music. Yes. I mean, when we talked about them in episode 78, it was because I brought one of their songs from 89 as a song that time forgot. The Replacements is one of those bands where I honestly feel like they're one of my favorite bands, but I always forget about them. Mm Mm-hmm. I just don't play them regularly, but when I remember and put one of their albums on, I'm always like, oh my God, I love this so much. There's so many other great songs on this particular album, too. But Alex Chilton is, it's the best. And I do love this story. I didn't know this story before. I love it so much. It's so cute. It gives a whole other flavor to the song. You know who I feel bad about, though? Who's that? I feel bad for George, the roadie, who was like, <laughs> yeah, oh, all my hard work, all this time, I'm finally going to get a song about me. I don't know. Maybe they wrote another one for George down the line. <laughs> sure. Well, another amazing song on that album is Can't Hardly Wait. Originally recorded for the album Tim, it was left off because Westerberg said it sounded tired and the band was tired of it by the time they laid down the track. 
They tried again for Please to Meet Me after Westerberg rewrote some of the lyrics. And ironically, Alex Chilton played guitar on this one, and you can also hear students from Memphis State University on horns and strings. Of course, it was later used as the title of the movie Can't Hardly Wait. When did that one come out? 97? Yeah, I feel it was right after we graduated high school. 96, <laughs> 97? Did they use the song in the movie? I don't remember. I saw it in theaters, though. I think it plays over like the end credits. That's interesting. It's not played in the movie because obviously they're playing a bunch of current music at the party and all that. Don't you find it kind of nuts that they picked this song as the title for, like, think of who the audience was for that movie, right? (laughs) Yeah. Was it Replacements fans? (laughs) I don't think so. It's kind of funny that the people that wrote that movie, they're the same people that wrote- uh, Yeah, Josie and the Pussycats, I was going to say, that they wrote it of the time and didn't write it about, like, a high school party that had happened when they were in high school. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. This Can't Hardly Wait is also very good. There's something about Paul Westerberg's voice that really keys something in me. Tickles an itch in my brain. (laughs) Oh, good. Well, next week we'll listen to, you pick out replacements, songs that I need to hear because I don't know them that well. And we'll listen to that other stuff we talked about. I forgot the name of it. All right. I don't think you gave your opinion of Can't Hardly Wait, Joe. I like it. No, these are are your babies. I know you love them a lot. I don't have anything bad to say. It's kind of music I would like. And I'm really surprised that I I didn't know more about them in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Well, topping the singles poll was the song Sign of the Times, appearing on 54 ballots. Just behind that was Luca by Suzanne Vega on 53 ballots. Sign of the Times was the lead single from Prince's album of the same name. And that album had grown out of three separate projects that were shelved a double LP by Prince and the Revolution, a different solo album by Prince intended to be a triple LP, and the infamous Camille record. (laughs) We've discussed that here or just in our private lives? We've discussed Camille here, maybe briefly. We should go into it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Prince ultimately combined all of those differing attempts into this double LP. On the single, Prince performs all the vocals and instruments on the track, although a lot of the instrumentation was produced using a Fairlight sampling synthesizer. Prince didn't even program new sounds into the synth. He just used the stock sounds already included. The lyrics on this one are a huge bummer, including references to drugs, AIDS, and the Challenger disaster. Hurricane Annie ripped the ceiling off a church and killed everyone inside. You turn on the telly and every other story is telling you somebody died. Sister killed a baby cause she couldn't afford to feed And it was sending people to the moon September my cousin tried reefer for the very first time Now he's doing horse, it's June Uh. The song spent three weeks at the top of the R&B chart And peaked at number three on the Hot 100 This was one where Casey would Like he predicted huge things for it Like it was gonna be a number one hit Mm -hmm. So to stop at number three that was a little shock 
I'll never forget Casey Kasem reciting the lyrics to this song. <laughs> he just like read them one time where I think the lyric about, you know, someone doing crack or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. And I'm just like, oh, yeah. my God, Casey, stop. Yeah. This was an important song, though. It is interesting to look back on it now. I, I don't remember. I don't have a memory. I have no memory of yeah. this. No memory of this from the 80s. I feel like I would have remembered it, you know, as being like, oh, no, you know, I shouldn't be hearing this stuff. But I don't remember mm. it at all. Mm-hmm. To think about the fact that he put this out in 1987 and that it was a number three hit. That's amazing to me that people even liked this song at all, <laughs> given that it's such a huge bummer. But that's Prince for you. Would you add this to a playlist? Oh, yeah, I would. This is another one where, okay. uh, you know, for being a number three hit, you never hear it on the radio anymore. I like it. I like it musically. It is a bummer. I wouldn't sing along with it, but <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't mind listening to it. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, that year, Chris Gow's single was Bring the Noise by Public Enemy. He's nothing if not predictable. Uh-huh. <laughs> Public Enemy had formed on Long Island in 1985. Chuck D and Flavor Flav led the group after meeting at Adelphi University. There's a lot of citation needed on the Wikipedia entry for the group about their early days, but their debut album was recorded in 1986 and released in February of 87. Executive produced by Rick Rubin. Yo, Bum Rush the Show was largely ignored by radio, even urban radio. But it sold so fast, it eventually reached gold status. Bring the Noise was included on the soundtrack to Less Than Zero, also produced by Ruben, that was released in November of 87. Starting with a sample of a public speech by Malcolm X, the song shouted out fellow hip-hop artists like Run DMC, LL Cool J, and metal band Anthrax because lead singer Scott Ian often wore public enemy shirts. The song was released as a single and went to 56 on the R&B chart, but was ranked 160th on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. So not really a chart success, but definitely a critical one that has lasted the test of time. For sure. You can tell within the first 10 seconds, you're like, this is a major song, right? Yeah. Huge. I can count the number of times I've heard this song in my life on one hand. I have freely admitted many, many times on this podcast that I have a huge blind spot for hip hop, R&B and rap music from the late 80s. Just never heard it. This is good, but I have to say, I can't stand Flavor Flav's voice. (laughs) I love him. It's grating. You love Flavor Flav's voice? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, my sister had Public Enemy CDs. Not this one, but I don't know. There's something about it. It's cartoonish. Okay. I do like Chuck D. I think Chuck D's a great rapper. He's got a very smooth voice. I liked all the parts, you know, he was on, but there's something. Not Flavor Flav. Yeah, it just grates on me. It just grates on me. Do you think it has anything to do with his reality show? Yes, yes, definitely. Uh I mean, he definitely became a parody of even himself in the later years. It's hard for me to listen to these with fresh ears and not just cringe. 
Right. But obviously the meat of the song is very good and all the parts without him. (laughs) So there Mm. you go. And that takes care of 1986 and 1987 for Paz and Jop. So what do we have left? 88 and 89, that's it? Yeah. We're going to get this wrapped up pretty soon, but it's going to be sad for me because I like talking about polar opposites, uh, you know, as far as genres go and everything in between. Well, we can always go back and, you know, dip into the lower ends of those number poles. Number three, number four. Yeah. There's quite a bit out there to mine, I'm sure. Yes. We have another segment, Carrie. We do. And it's called... Just a bit outside. We're talking about those songs that did not hit the top 40. So they parked somewhere in the Billboard chart, Hot 100, between number 100 and number 41. I think Carrie introduced this for the first time and said, we're going to talk about every song. (laughs) Is that how you said it on that very first day of this? Okay. Yeah, we're supposed to. (laughs) We're going to be doing this until we're 120 years old. You always say that. Yes, yes, yes. The first song from Just a Bit Outside is a song called She's in Love with You by Susie Quattro. You have to know this if you listen to Charlie's. I just heard it today. Oh, no, that was on your playlist that you made. (laughs) (laughs) A native of Detroit, Susie Quattro taught herself how to play bass and guitar and also played drums from an early age with her father's jazz band. She moved to England in the early 70s to work with record producer Mickey Most and scored a number of number one singles in the UK and Australia in the mid-70s, but never reached the top 40 in the States until Stumblin' In went to number four in 1978. Wasn't that a duet? Yeah, I forget. The guy's name, Chris something. Do you like that song? I've heard it and been like, meh, whatever. It's cute. I like it. All right. Quattro was appearing at this time as a recurring character on Happy Days called Leather Tuscadero, who played in a band with Joni Cunningham. Leather and Pinky Tuscadero, remember? (laughs) Yes. Were they twins or cousins? I think they were just sisters, and Pinky Hmm. dated Fonz. The Fonz, yeah. And Susie Quattro's niece is Sherilyn Fenn from Twin Peaks. True, correct, correct. Thought I was going to wow you with that, but someone (laughs) forgot you were already on her Wikipedia page today. (laughs) She's in Love With You was written by Mike Chapman and Nikki Chin, who produced hit songs like My Sharona and Rapture. Released in late 1979, She's in Love With You went to number one in Portugal and South Africa, 11 in the UK, and peaked at number 41 on the Hot 100 on January 19th, 1980. I like this one, but you know, I think the more that I hear it, the less I like it. (laughs) Really? I love it. I've added it to my library months ago. It's cute. It's catchy. She has such a rock and roll voice. Yes. I want to go back and listen to her earlier stuff. I'm like shocked. Like, what was it about her that was such a big hit in the UK? Well, buckle up, because there's a documentary (laughs) about her life that's now streaming on Tubi. Oh, there is? Mm -hmm. Oh, I want to watch that. Tubi. I definitely want to watch that. I will check it out. All right. Very cool. Well, our next entry is Taking It Back by Breathless. Jonah Coslin was a member of the Michael Stanley Band in the mid-70s but broke off in 1977 to form Breathless, which also included former member of Wild Cherry Mark Avsek. 
Taking It Back was their only song to ever chart. Debuted at number 96 on January 12th, 1980, and climbed to 92 the next week before falling from the chart. Joe, this is the lowest charter we have covered so far. Good for them. I know, it's a little exciting. <laughs> no, I mean, the song sucks. They yeah, deserve I know, to chart exactly. even lower than that. Yeah. <laughs> the band broke up after one more album, and many of them joined Donnie Iris's backing band. Oh my God. Do you know what that means? What's that? Oh, he might see them at 80s in the sand. Oh, my God, you're right. <laughs> I forgot Donnie Iris is oh, going to be there. Um, this song's cool. It sounded like a song from 1971, <laughs> but in a good way. I thought it sounded like a ELO ripoff. Oh, not even close. Really? They wish. They wish they could sound like an ELO <laughs> ripoff. This song sucked so I know. bad. It is. It's so stupid. It's such a non-entity. I am shocked. The musically and the lyrics, like nothing. No, no. I wanted to be breathless, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I am shocked that this one even made it to the chart. You know what? I have no basis for this whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Please don't sue me. But I just kind of feel like this is one that must have like been... Payola? Payola. But then like the record label ran out of money real quick. Ran out of money. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways... Just a bit outside. One good one, one bad one. I know. That that one should be in a different segment called Just a Lot Outside. A lot outside, yeah. <laughs> way, way, way outside. Right. <laughs> all right. That's all we have for this week, Joe. And nothing else to report here at the end? I have nothing else to report here at the end. All right. Well, Joe said uh, next weekend, Joe, I am coming to visit you. So you'll get at least one episode where the two of us are in the same room together. I don't know if that makes a difference, if anyone could ever even tell (laughs) when we do these. But it's a lot of passing the mic back and forth. (laughs) That's true. Well, I got that new computer. Maybe your mic will work. Oh, yeah. So I'll bring it with. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Look forward to that. Uh, lots of fun reports we'll have of activities we're going to do together. Mm-hmm. So, Well, everybody, thank you for listening. Take care. Be safe. Be well. And be kind to others and to yourself and to us. Yes. I think that says it all, Joe. Yep. Well, thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. I'm going to Graceland, Graceland. Memphis, Tennessee, I'm going to Graceland Poor boys and pilgrims with families And we are going to Graceland And my traveling companion